Two weeks ago, Pastor Chad introduced us to Moses, born to an Israelite family during their slavery in Egypt, saved from Pharaoh's murderous decree by his courageous mother and sister, brought safely through the waters to be adopted into Pharaoh's own household and raised as a prince of Egypt. Now, chapter 2 goes on to tell us that when Moses was 40 years old, he struck down an Egyptian who was beating a fellow Hebrew. Already, Moses was acting as protector of God's people. Yet, even as God raised up a deliverer for them, God's people rejected their Savior. So Moses had to flee from Egypt into the wilderness. But even in the wilderness... Moses continued to serve as a deliverer. He saved the daughters of a man named Jethro when they were being harassed by shepherds. He married one of those daughters, and Moses then sojourns in the land of Midian for another 40 years. There, the deliverer also became the good shepherd. He learned how to lead the flock in the wilderness. Now, meanwhile, back in Egypt... Exodus 2, verse 23 tells us the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. Now God has already been preparing his deliverer, preparing his good shepherd for this very moment. And in today's passage, God appears to Moses and calls him to return to Egypt and deliver God's people. So before we go further in that story, let's pray. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for your learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we're turning today to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to begin at verse 1, which was just read for us a moment ago. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. Horeb means dry place. And it's important for us to realize that this is Mount Sinai. Uh, we learn that from what's said later in this chapter. But this is the very same mountain where God will later deliver the law and the Ten Commandments. And so what's happening to Moses here in our story today will later happen to Israel. And that's a pattern we see throughout this book. Head first, then body. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So we have the angel of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's literally messenger of Yahweh. Yahweh being the name of God, as we will see shortly. And usually the angel of the Lord takes on the appearance of a man. But in this case, the angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire in the midst of this bush. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. 
When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now what do we make of this strange sight, this burning bush? Is it just a spectacle, something to get Moses' attention? Or is it a sign? Is there a deeper meaning symbolized here? While the bush is burning, there is a consuming fire and eating fire in the midst of the bush, yet the bush itself is not consumed. It is not eaten by the fire. What does this mean? Now, who is usually associated with uh, bushes and plants and vines in the Old Testament? Isn't it the people of Israel? They are the shoot from the promised seed of the woman. They are the vine that Yahweh has planted and cultivated. So perhaps this bush represents Israel, the people of Israel. And indeed, Israel is under fire, aren't they? They're enslaved and abused in Egypt. They are in the fiery furnace of Gentile oppression. But that's not what this fire represents. Who is described as a consuming fire throughout the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 4.24 tells us, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is the consuming fire. So it seems this bush pictures the sons of Israel, and the fire represents God himself. The burning bush pictures the consuming fire of God dwelling in the midst of his people, the people of Israel. Now, if you know the rest of the story, that idea should sound very familiar. The burning bush is a sign of God's plan for his people Israel, the plan that he will bring to fruition through Moses throughout the rest of this book. God has heard the cries of his people in Egypt, and in response, the fire of God is going to come and dwell in the midst of his people. The Lord is going to purify and to refine his people. He will deliver them through the fire, in fact, he will lead them out of Egypt as a pillar of fire, and Israel will feel the heat of God's holy presence among them, but they will not be consumed. And this is why it's important that, that we realize Moses is at Mount Sinai right now when this is happening, because later God will appear as a burning fire on this same mountain once again. And that time, the fire will appear not just to Moses, but to all the sons of Israel. There, God will give Israel his words of life, the Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, the Law of God. And on that day, the whole mountain will be a burning bush, and God will give his chosen son, the people of Israel, their calling as well. Head first, then body. And later on, at, at Mount Sinai, God will also give Moses instructions for the building of God's holy house, his tabernacle. Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And it's the same Hebrew word used to describe how the fire dwells in the midst of the burning, of the burning bush. 
an indication that we're supposed to connect these things. So once that tabernacle is built later on, then, then the fiery cloud of God's presence will indeed descend from Mount Sinai and it will light the tabernacle, which is set up right in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. This will show Israel that the tabernacle is a portable Mount Sinai, that a holy God dwells in the midst of his people, but they are not destroyed, just as the fire dwells in the midst of the bush without burning it. And so the fire of God will at that time also fall upon the bronze altar at the tabernacle, which is another symbolic Mount Sinai. Again, it's a consuming fire. It's an eating fire. And God will command that sacrifices be burned and be eaten by his fire on that altar. And so that too will show that God has accepted Israel's offering and that he has eaten them as a pleasing meal. But again, the people themselves will not be consumed by the fire. The fire will consume the animal substitutes that are offered in their place. So, so here at the burning bush of Exodus 3, we, we have a prophecy of everything that is going to come in the rest of the book. What God is going to do for his people through the mediation of Moses and through the ministry of the tabernacle. The fiery, holy God is coming to dwell in the midst of his people. And that's a dangerous situation, right? Because normally, the holiness of God would consume sinful humanity if he were to draw near to them. Ordinarily, a bush that is caught on fire will be burned up. A holy God cannot allow sin in his presence. Fire must consume wood. But this burning bush is a prophecy. It tells Moses that God is going to make a way. God is going to make a way. A way of deliverance. A way of purification. A gracious way of forgiveness. So that a holy God can dwell in the midst of his people. So that the fire of Yahweh can burn in the midst of Israel and not consume them. Israel will be able to draw near to God, to worship him, to feast with him, to enjoy him forever by the means of substitutionary sacrifice, offerings consumed by the fire in their place. And this is all the goal that God has had since the beginning, that God and man would dwell together. But remember, Adam and Eve's sin meant they were cast out of God's holy presence, lest they be destroyed. Also remember that God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword at the gate of the garden, a fire that would consume Adam and Eve if they tried to return to God's presence in their sin. But now God is making a way for humanity to return, to pass through the fire and not be burned, to return to fellowship with their God, now, it's only a partial return, right? It's only through priestly representatives. It's only through animal substitutes. It is only through repeated cleansing rituals and animal sacrifices. But it is a way of return nonetheless. It is a way for sinful humanity to draw near to God, and thus it is a grace. And so the, the central message 
of Exodus and of the Mosaic law and the sacrifices and the tabernacle is grace. It's about access to the Father. And it's all signified, it's all prophesied by this image of the burning bush here in the third chapter of Exodus. The fire of God is coming to dwell in the midst of his people and he will make a way for them to dwell in his presence without being consumed. Now the story continues, verse 5. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What does that mean? What, what makes this ground holy? Well, it's not something special about this mountain or, or this dirt in themselves. What makes it holy is that God is there. God is there. Holiness is about access to God. Wherever God makes himself specially present, as he has in this fire, that place becomes holy. And it's, it's going to be the same thing with the tabernacle and later with the temple. Anything, that, uh, anything or anyone that comes into God's house has to be invited in. And they have to come according to the law. And they have to be prepared. They have to be sanctified. They have to be made holy. They have to be made acceptable to enter God's presence. So even the furniture has to be anointed with oil and sprinkled with blood because uh, the same thing for the priests. Holiness is about being granted access to God. And so here, Moses is being invited into God's presence just as Israel will later be invited to draw near to God at the tabernacle. And Moses should not be able to approach God. That's the point of the burning bush. She should not be able to pass the cherubim with the flaming sword. The fire should consume him. But here, God invites him in. God is creating a way of approach. Why does God tell Moses he can take off his sandals because of the holy ground. Well, you see, ordinarily, uh, the ground or the dirt is cursed. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word, they ate of the forbidden tree. And when they did that, God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. It doesn't mean the ground itself is bad. It, it's the ground. God created it, and he called it good. What it means is that God has made the ground, the earth, the prosecutor of the curse on Adam. The ground is the prosecutor of the curse on Adam. It's the ground that cries out, man has sinned, blood has been shed. It is the ground that brings forth thorns and thistles as a sign that humanity is under a curse, that their work has become laborious. So the ground prosecutes the curse. So ordinarily, you had to clean the dirt off of you if you wanted to draw near to God's presence. Ordinarily, you had to wash your body and wash your clothing to approach God's house. You had to get that prosecuting dirt off your body. So what we have here is a unique blessing for Moses. God tells him he can just walk in without any sandals to protect his feet from the curse. He can just walk into God's presence. It, it kind of reminds us of the way things were in Eden before the fall, right? When, when God and man walked together in the garden and Adam was not wearing any shoes. It foreshadows the priests of Israel 
They get to go barefoot as well when they serve in the tabernacle. They have been made holy. They do not wear shoes. They tread on holy ground. And they are new Moseses walking barefoot before the new burning bush. So here, Moses is being treated as though he is holy. He's treated as though he is a consecrated priest. He's allowed to enter God's holy presence, which means God has temporarily forgiven the curse prosecuted by the dust so that Moses can safely tread this holy ground and draw near to God. Verse 6, And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God head first, then body. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. When the people of Israel come to this mountain, they too will cower, because they fear to enter the presence of God. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here at the mountain of God, the man of God receives the word of God, and it is a calling, it is a vocation. He is to return to Egypt and deliver God's people from the hand of Pharaoh. No easy task. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Moses asks. God is the one who promises to save and indeed is the only one with power to save. Moses wonders, what help can he possibly be? Remember, he tried to deliver the Hebrews once before. And it wasn't well received. They rejected his salvation. Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What's the sign for Moses? You will serve God on this mountain. It's a promise. This is how God reassures Moses. Think what he's telling him here. Moses, this mountain that you're standing on right now, I will bring you back here. You will enter into my presence once again. What does that promise mean? It means God has to bring Moses through whatever trials he would face in Egypt. That's the sign, the promise of God. God says, you shall serve God. In the Old Testament, serve often has the, the connotation of worship. To serve God is to worship him through praise and sacrifice and obedience. So we've got again another head first, then body event here. What future event does this foreshadow? Moses meets God in fire on Mount Sinai and God calls him to a mission. Later, Israel will meet God in fire on Mount Sinai and God will call them to their mission to serve him, to worship him, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a light set on a hill for the joy of the nations. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You see, Moses already anticipates the people of Israel will be skeptical of his call. I mean, they've already rejected his deliverance once. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God doesn't need anything else to define him, to name him, to hem him in. Rather, everything else, everything else in the world is defined by God, named by God. All else is known according to its relationship to him. For he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the sovereign Lord over all. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, this is kind of a weird statement because of the way our translations work. That, that title, the Lord, it's printed in all capital letters in your Bible, right? And that's the translator's way of rendering the Hebrew name of God. Now, we don't know exactly how this name was pronounced because in Hebrew, uh, the vowels are not written out, so you can use different sounds. But in English, that Hebrew word has been translated with various vowel sounds as Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, I usually use the latter. So when I speak of Yahweh, I'm using the Hebrew name that your Bible represents with Lord in capital letters. Now, why do our Bibles do that? Why do they use the word Lord? God said, this is my name. Why do they use the word Lord instead of just translating it as Yahweh or one of these other variations? Well, that's because a superstition later developed of not speaking God's name out loud or even writing it out completely. In, instead, when they would read the Hebrew text aloud, they would replace the name Yahweh with the Hebrew word Adonai, uh, which is not a name at all. It's a title. It's a title of respect for a master or a king, and it's roughly equivalent to our English word Lord. The problem with, with this convention is precisely that Lord is not a name, right? It's a title. It's not personal. It's not intimate. And God specifically told Moses to call him by his name. So it's kind of unfortunate that this tradition still holds such sway, but that's what it is. God says, Yahweh is his memorial name. He says, thus I am to be remembered, or better, this name is my memorial. Same words our Lord uses at the table. In the Bible, a memorial uh, is a thing. It's a thing that reminds God and us of his covenant promises. A memorial calls God to act according to his promises. So you think of the rainbow after the flood is a memorial. The, the Passover meal is called a memorial. The stones in the Jordan River are a memorial. A memorial is something set up to remind God to act according to the covenant he has made. Not because he forgets, but because he likes us to hold these things up before him and to call out to him, please do as you have promised. 
And so God's memorial name is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when God's people call on the name of Yahweh, they are calling God to be faithful to the promises he has made to those fathers. The promises he made to Abraham to multiply his people, to plant them in the land, to bless them and make them a blessing to the nations. We call upon God's name to call him to fulfill these promises. God continues his call to Moses in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go. So God gives Moses this message. And it's attached to his memorial name. A promise to deliver the sons of Israel as he has delivered their fathers. And there's a message for Pharaoh as well. The God of the Hebrews is exercising his claim on his people. He is calling them to himself. So Pharaoh, you must let them go. God says the Hebrews are to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. Now this is really important uh, because it shows us that uh, what God considered the purpose and goal of the whole exodus. The purpose of the exodus was worship. The purpose of the Exodus was worship. Think of all the other things God could have called his people to do and does call them to do when he calls them out of Egypt. He calls them to work. He calls them to prosper. He calls them to multiply, to set up society and government, to establish trade, to uphold justice, to evangelize and to convert the nations. All of those things are good things that God calls his people to. But out of all these things... God lists worship as the goal of the Exodus. Indeed, all these other things will only follow if right worship is established first. Worship is the most important thing human beings do, and everything else flows from right worship of the true God. And so we see here the main event of the Old Testament was undertaken so that God's people could worship him according to his word. God continues, verse 19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now those two phrases, stretch out and he will let you go, they're from the same Hebrew Root. And so it's a play on words to show that when Yahweh sends out the plagues, Pharaoh will send out the Israelites. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next week with the wonders that God will do, with the, the ten plagues upon Egypt, the war of the gods, the decreation of the house of Egypt. The mighty hand of God will go with Moses to redeem the children of Israel and glorify his name in the sight of the nations. 
For today, let it suffice for us to turn aside and to contemplate this sign of the burning bush. It's not just a spectacle to get Moses' attention. It's not a magic trick that God does to show off. It is a sign filled with meaning. Moses turns to contemplate it, to gain wisdom from this sign. It's a signpost pointing the way for the rest of the book. God has heard the cries of his people, and he is coming. He is coming to dwell in their midst, and the fire of Yahweh will burn in the heart of the bush that is Israel, and they will not be consumed. Head first, then body. As Moses goes out into the wilderness, so Israel will go out into the wilderness. As Moses encounters God atop this mountain, so Israel will encounter God at this mountain. As the fire burns atop this bush, so the fire of God will burn atop Mount Sinai, as though the mountain itself were a great flaming tree reaching to the sky. As God makes a way for the fire to dwell in the bush without burning it, and makes a way for Moses to approach him on holy ground without being killed, so God is going to make a way for his holy presence to dwell in the midst of Israel, his tabernacle, his holy house. God is going to make a way for Israel to draw near to him in worship and not be consumed by his holy fire. Head first, then body. The burning bush is the signal fire lighting the way through the rest of the book of Exodus. The New Testament speaks of a greater burning bush. Jesus the Christ. He is the vine from heaven, the root and stem of Jesse, the branch of David. Jesus is the fulfillment, the true Israelite, the very Son of God. And the fire of Yahweh burned in him, whiter and hotter than it ever burned in Israel before. For he is the angel of the Lord. He is the messenger of Yahweh. He is the fire come down from heaven, kindled in human flesh. He's not merely God dwelling among men. He is God and man united in one person. He is the reality that fulfills the shadows of Sinai. And the greater burning bush was nailed to another tree, lifted up on the cross, and there he underwent a baptism by fire, the consuming fire of God's wrath, the fire we deserved for our sin, but which he took upon himself in our place. And though the furnace raged and the fire engulfed him, it did not ultimately consume him. The cross of Christ is the burning bush which calls us to turn aside and see this great sign. We contemplate the cross of Christ and we marvel at the wisdom of God. We marvel that the God of the Exodus raised Jesus from the grave. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delivered his deliverer. And the greater burning bush emerged from the fire, now refined, now glorified, now freed from the bonds of death and decay. As the pleasing offering, Jesus ascended the mountain of God. He ascended into heaven. He tread on holy ground. He was welcomed into the most holy place. And he was set up there as the glorified burning bush, the heavenly lampstand, the light of the world. 
and from heaven he sends down fire, tongues of fire, to enkindle the sprigs and shoots of his apostles on the day of Pentecost, making them little burning bushes in his image, making them living Mount Sinai, making them his church, where those wandering in the wilderness can turn aside and draw near to the living God. And this burning bush has set the world ablaze. And we are sparks from this flame. Each of us is a burning bush with the fiery spirit of God dwelling in our midst. We have been invited into God's presence. And so wherever we are, we stand on holy ground because God has given all authority on earth to Jesus Christ. And we know that we can face the trials and temptations of this life. We can enter the fire of God and not be consumed because we have been baptized in the memorial name of Jesus and we trust ourselves to him. We have been made holy by his blood. And so we too come to the mountain to serve our God. In the midst of this wilderness of life in a fallen world, we ascend to worship. We come to our Mount Sinai. We come to hear God's word. We come to feast at his altar. We come to receive his commission. We come so that the greater burning bush can transform us into his image, making us the light of the world. He sends us out, and we carry the fire. Let us pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Moses, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would enkindle the fire of your presence in our midst. For the sake of your Son, do not consume us, but purify and refine. Make us faithful priests to serve in your house as we work to help others draw near to you through Jesus Christ. Go with us and deliver us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.